Hello, my name is Maxine McIntosh, and I have the huge privilege of leading our diverse data initiative over at Genomics England, which aims to ensure that genomic medicine really does work for everyone. This week, myself and the other amazing members of the Diverse Data team are taking over the GWED podcast to host a series of discussions around diversity in healthcare, health and genomic data. These short sessions will hopefully give you a wee bit of insight into some of the complex issues we're uncovering as a team, as well as hopefully some food for thought. We hope you enjoy them and we definitely loved interviewing family members, old friends, new collaborators who are all in some big or small way trailblazing in improving health and genomic equity. We would love to hear any thoughts you have on the subjects we're discussing. Our door is truly wide open, so feel free to drop me a message via the podcast email address, which is very conveniently podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Uh, so, uh, welcome back to the Diverse Data Takeover of the GWORD podcast. Uh, my name is Dr. James Cook, and I'm a bioinformatician within the Data Diversity team at Genomics England. Uh, in this episode, we're going to be looking at the data diversity issue from a more analytical standpoint. Uh, what are the big advantages of analysing diverse groups of people? And what are we potentially missing out on if we don't do this? Uh, joining today is Garrett Helenthal from UCL. Thank you very much for being here, Garrett. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Uh, could First off, could you please introduce yourself and your work for our listeners? So I'm an associate professor at uh, University College London, and I work in statistical genetics, um, which is quite a broad field. But a lot of my recent work has been looking into learning about population history by studying genetic variation patterns. So what can we learn about human history using DNA? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I actually did a little bit of population genetics myself before joining Genomics England. So keeping this on the subject of uh, data diversity, what do you feel are the big challenges and benefits of working with diverse data in genomics? Sorry, I know that's an incredibly broad question. So whatever kind of viewpoint you want to start off with this. There's major advantages to working with uh, lots of diverse genomes, I'd say, which probably outweigh any sort of disadvantages in acquiring that data or any. Lots of current studies have been very focused on Europeans. I'm sure this is something that's been discussed in lots of different areas. Um, and so as a result, a lot of the information that we have on both population genetics and on studying disease and how genetics plays a role in trade associations have been focused primarily just on Europeans. And so we don't have much information for other groups. We now know that a lot of the findings that we have from looking at how genetic variants are associated with traits in Europeans don't really translate to other populations. So if you find a particular gen genetic variant that's associated with a trait in Europeans that won't necessarily be associated with the trait in a different population, say Africans or East Asians. And so it's absolutely essential that we get data from these different populations to understand so how kind of the etiology of disease varies across different groups. And so it's incredibly important. It's also important for learning about human history. So probably a lot of what I do is kind of related to genetic ancestry testing companies. So things like 23andMe, Ancestry.co.uk, where you're trying to figure out uh, where people's ancestry come from. And currently we could do that quite well and quite precisely for people with European backgrounds, but we can't do it quite as well for people with backgrounds, say in Africa or East Asia or other places. And the reason for that is that we don't have a very good reference set to compare your DNA to, to learn about your ancestry. And so it's incredibly important that we build up these reference data sets in these other worldwide populations 
so that we can learn more about the ancestry of people who aren't entirely European. Now, some of the challenges of this is collecting these types of reference data. Okay, so going into different countries, in particular places that may not have the resources, the quite as developed resources for acquiring this type of data or analyzing this type of data, um, and working with the local communities to figure out which, you know, how do we collect these samples? How do we provide infrastructure um, to allow the analysis of these samples in the countries where they're taking from, rather than just sort of going in there as, say, European researchers, collecting the data from these individuals and then just publishing papers without any local involvement. And so a, a kind of major challenge is how do we integrate the communities who actually are providing these data resources, and in particular in cases where they may not have the same infrastructure capabilities in terms of computation and storage and other things that we have uh, in some areas of Europe. Uh, yeah, is one of the kind of ideals of your work that you kind of when you do study alternate pop well, when you study other more diverse populations that you perhaps there's funding there to bring up the local the local knowledge, the local research, um, the facilities that they have in those countries, etc. Yeah, there is some of those opportunities. So now when we apply for funding for this sort of thing, we either try to well, we always have to work quite closely with researchers in those communities for just to know which samples to get and to kind of know, you know, for my field, if I'm interested in kind of studying how genetics might correlate with anthropological research and previous historical research, I need to know what groups of people are the interesting data to collect to answer those questions. I'm not going to have that knowledge without talking to local anthropologists and others. And so that helps you give you an idea of which samples you need to collect and yeah, funding bodies are getting better in the UK about then giving you money to to uh, work with these individuals and also to go back and feed back to the communities once you've collected those samples. And for example, to maybe give um, short courses talking about how to, how to use the methodology, how to analyze the data and those sorts of things. Yes, that's really interesting. I mean, it surprises me that it's taken quite a long time for this to become normal because the idea of using population isolate groups has been around in quantitative trait and, and um, binary trait genetics for a long time. Thinking of things like the Finnish population, there are some Greek isolates that um, I was using in analyses going back to about 2013, 2014. Um, so can I just ask what populations you've studied and whereabouts your, what, what data you're working with at the moment? Well, uh, so we just had a recent study come out that was looking at Ethiopian populations. And so that's one part of the world that I was quite interested in looking at. Uh, there's a ton of linguistic diversity. So there's over 70 different languages spoken in Ethiopia. There's tons of different cultural traits. And we also know that Africa has some of the highest genetic diversity in the world. In fact, the overall highest in the world relative to all other human groups. Um, so it's an incredibly interesting area to to study, to look at things like how genetics associates with things like linguistic affiliation, cultural characteristics, you know, shared culture, those sorts of things, and also geography. And so what we did is we worked very closely with an anthropologist, uh, Ayeli Tarakigan, who's at Addis Ababa University, who over about a 10-year period, he went around collecting samples from uh, over 60 different ethno-linguistic groups. So going to these different communities, talking to them about the project, uh, telling them what we're going to use the DNA samples for, trying to get translators to, to get that information across, and then collecting the samples and working with us to decide what sort of questions we'd be interested in looking at um, to learn about the history of the peoples in these regions. 
the challenge involved there, just kind of trying to get every different ethnic group within a country uh, just sounds absolutely fascinating. Um, one of the things that you mentioned on your website uh, was the idea that sociological features could lead to genetic differentiation among ethnic groups. Uh, could you go into that a little bit deeper for us, please? Yeah, um, well, I'll give you an example. So one of the groups that we studied in Ethiopia, they're quite fascinating. They're an ethnicity known as the Ari. And so they're a um, group of people that live in the southwestern uh, part of Ethiopia. And one interesting feature of this group is that they're divided into occupational classes, which have kind of a sort of caste-like system. And in particular, we had data from individuals who worked as farmers, individuals who worked as blacksmiths, and individuals who worked as potters. And currently, the way that society is structured in the Ari community is farmers typically don't interact with blacksmiths and potters. And so potters and blacksmiths are kind of a bit lower down in the social hierarchy. Farmers don't uh, intermix with them or, or allegedly intermarry with them. And so we're kind of interested in how, um, you know, what this might be doing to their genetics. And what we found somewhat surprisingly is that even though we had lots of evidence that they share fairly recent history in the sense that they seem to have recent ancestry patterns, if you, if you take the DNA from Ari individuals from any of these three groups, and you compared them to DNA from any other groups, they basically look the same. So they kind of matched other groups in the same way, suggesting that they have very similar ancestry patterns overall. But nonetheless, if you compare them to each other, so if you take a blacksmith individual, they're much more genetically related to other blacksmiths, even though the samples that we have are unrelated. So these weren't first cousins or anything like this. Um, blacksmiths were much more related to each other than they were to potters or farmers. Similarly, potters were much more related to other potters than they were to blacksmiths or farmers. And so it became this kind of scenario where you could tell exactly which occupation these people had just by looking at their DNA. So if I took a DNA from these Ari individuals, I could tell whether they were a farmer, a blacksmith, or a potter just based on their genetic variation patterns. And this is entirely down to this social exclusion idea, the fact that these different groups, if you're in these different occupational classes, you're not intermixing with each other. And so over time, you start to kind of get unique DNA patterns that we can tell apart. So that's one example of how these, you know, this, this kind of social construct of these different occupational classes, for whatever reason, culturally not mixing together, has led to these genetic differences that you see in DNA. Wow, that is so interesting. I guess that really highlights that it would have been completely impossible to do this kind of research without having local involvement and local knowledge of how the society functions and how it's structured. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we would not have known to sample those particular groups. And there's been lots of archaeological hypotheses about, you know, where do these caste-like constructs come from? And there was one hypothesis that maybe these groups were very ancient kind of relic populations. There's an idea that the blacksmiths might have been this ancient hunter-gatherer group that was living in Ethiopia for many tens of thousands of years before farmer groups then came along. Um, and then they've just never intermixed at, at that whole era since that whole time. Or an alternative hypothesis was that, you know, relatively recently people have, you know, there, there was just one ethnic group, the Ari. Relatively recently, one of the groups, some of the individuals of the Ari groups decided to pick up blacksmithing. And then once they did, over time, they stopped intermixing with the farmers. And by using some kind of care, careful DNA analyses, we were able to understand that it seems to be the hypothesis of recent isolation between these groups, and in particular, 
Well, these genetic differences between the farmers and the blacksmiths have come about only because they've recently stopped intermixing with each other. And it's not true that one of them is this ancient hunter-gatherer group um, and the other one is this more recent farmer community. And so it was kind of this long-standing anthropological hypothesis that we were able to try to, I think, pretty convincingly resolve by using DNA. I guess this also shows the importance of making sure that the entire society is included when you have uh, when you're kind of recruiting for uh, big genetics or big genomic studies. I guess there was previously the notion that if you had um, X number of people from a country, then that was that was the population of that country included. But clearly not the case when you have so many genetically diverse groups um, living as kind of subpopulations within the same country or within the same region. Yeah, that's right. It, 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 this analysis even suggests that even if you've got the same ethnic group, you have to worry about occupation for this particular group as well. So yeah, these things can be very important for designing sampling strategies for future genetic association studies where you're trying to find variants associated with traits and disease. Yeah, because I, I remember when I started in genetics, Europe was considered a homogenous population group. Like, and I guess for the for the purpose of of some genomic analyses, it still is, right? We have our broad ancestral groups um, and you kind of stratify analyses by population group, but that kind of doesn't say much as to the the genetic diversity and the ethnic diversity that you have within ancestral groups. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, so as you say, in some sense, European is Europeans are somewhat homogeneous relative to some of these populations in Africa, especially. So getting back to your diversity question, why it's so important to collect DNA from some of these places outside of Europe, our studies have shown that even within Ethiopia, you've got so much genetic diversity that it's higher than what you see across countries spanning all of Europe. So from Eastern Europe to West to Italy to the North, if you consider the diversity of people spanning that entire space, there's considerably more diversity just within Ethiopia across groups. Yeah, so it's vital that we get kind of groups like that, really diverse and interesting groups genetically included in genetic studies in large numbers. So before we get much further into this, uh, I just wanted to define a couple of terms that may come up later on for the benefit of our listeners who perhaps aren't so familiar with population genetics. Um, so firstly, um, admixture. I know this is something that you've been kind of interested and looked at in the past, past and I guess, I guess a continuing interest for you. Uh, could you please explain what you mean when you talk about admixture? Yeah, so it's the intermixing of different groups. Okay, so the current consensus, what we, well, what, I guess we knew before DNA, or at least we strongly suspected which DNA has helped corroborate, is that modern humans arose in Africa. And then after spending a number of thousands of years or tens of thousands of years in Africa, they didn't spread into the rest of the world. And then they kind of, as you might expect, they occupied different niches. Okay, so some individuals spread into Europe, some into East Asia, down onto Australia, etc. Um, and over time, they started to become isolated from one another. And so they became genetically differentiated from one another. But then subsequently, of course, in the last few thousand years, there's been lots of large-scale migrations due to things like army movements, vast empires. Um, and this has led to these groups that used to be isolated meeting up again and intermixing with each other. And that's what we refer to as admixture. It's when these previously isolated groups come together again and intermix. 
Again, something that's really interesting and, and super relevant at the moment. Um, historically, genetic studies have been performed using samples of the same ancestry to avoid geographical confounding. So another term people might not be familiar with. Um, whenever you do any kind of genetic analyses, you're looking for differences in um, allele frequency, the frequency of genetic markers uh, between individuals and groups of indiv individuals. And typically, the biggest differences you'll see will always be related to geography. Um, you have these huge genetic differences between ethnic groups, between ancestral groups. So analyses have typically been performed using kind of single population groups to try and counteract geographical confounding. Um, but do you think that now there's going to be a concerted effort with genomic research to ensure that these that kind of more heavily admixed individuals, so people, for example, who have parents of different ancestral groups of different ethnicities, uh, can these be included? Can these people be included in genetic studies in the future? Because their genetic makeup could be incredibly useful and, and really informative to healthcare research. Well, yeah, not only that, but they certainly shouldn't be excluded, right? So part of what our work has showed is that it seems that most individuals are admixed to some form at some level. So you're quite right that a lot of these health studies are focused on individuals that come from a very um, condensed geographic region and have similar ancestry. Okay, so the idea is to try to exclude people that have recent ancestry from other other regions. So for example, if you're looking at the UK, you might be excluding people that have ancestry from Africa, recent ancestry from Africa, recent ancestry from East Asia. And I think quite justifiably, that's come under a lot of criticism because there's, even though it might be harder to analyze those samples, because a lot of our statistical tests rely on people being genetically homogeneous, and that makes the test a lot easier. You know, these people are part of the society as well. They're part of the healthcare system, and we need to learn how disease affects these individuals as well. And exactly if there are different genetic variants in these individuals that might be affecting particular traits relative to ones that are predominantly of European ancestry. So it's incredibly important to not exclude these individuals. And furthermore, they provide all kinds of new insights. Okay, so it could well be that a particular gene that we think might be influencing a disease, we might be quite convinced of that fact, um, but we've learned about it only through studying Europeans if we look at a different population, so mixed individuals or people of other ancestry, um, so from outside of Europe, we might find that it's completely different genes involved. And so understanding exactly why that's the case, that, that changes our whole outlook on how that gene might be influencing that particular trait and whether we're missing other essential genes that are influential for that trait and how that might interact with different environments. And so there's tons of advantages to be had by studying these mixed ancestry individuals. Yeah, I think that that's going to be something really interesting going forward, especially as a kind of the presence of, of heavily admixed individuals seems to be increasing. It, it's vital to get people like that included in healthcare research. Um, can I just ask, have you previously done any work looking at the population of, um, of Great Britain and, or the UK? I have, yeah. I was involved in a study uh, known as the People of the British Isles or POBE project, where they collected data from about 2,000 people across the United Kingdom. It's a very specialized data set where all four, for each individual, all four of their grandparents were born within 80 kilometers of one another. And so the idea is to get people that had been in this region for a while. Okay, so their grandparents had lived in this region, their parents lived in this region. They've been in that area. 
And what we did is we took their DNA and we tried to see, you know, is there any strong correlation between genetics and geography within this within the United Kingdom, which is something that you typically think of as a genetically homogeneous population. Yeah, I actually did a similar bit of work myself looking at some um, some population structure and population stratification within the sample used by UK Biobank. Uh, we saw absolutely tons of, of geographical differences kind of across the entire genome. It, I, as you say, in um, a sample group that you would have thought of as being relatively genetically similar. Yeah, so that's what we found as well. Yeah, I mean, it, we, it was quite striking. Um, you could see differences down to the level of county. So, for example, you could tell whether somebody was from Devon or Cornwall just by looking at their DNA. And that's going to become more prominent as we start to get more sequencing type data where we're collecting rare variants. Um, they're going to become very localized. So, yeah, absolutely. You'll see it across UK Biobank as well, that there is very clear. I mean, even though they're subtle, they're, they're subtle in a lot of ways. They're definitely subtle relative to differences you might see amongst African groups or in other parts of the world. But nonetheless, you can see genetic differences amongst different regions of the United Kingdom, which in part reflects that people just haven't moved around that much from these areas. Yeah, I think this highlights one of the big challenges that people are facing at the moment, trying to analyze diverse data sets. You have so much genetic diversity between two kind of adjacent counties of the UK, um, a country that, as you say, is not as, as genetically diverse as uh, countries in Africa, some countries in kind of in, in other continents. And you've got to try and account for that um, if you're analyzing a, a, a global sample is incredibly difficult. You can end up with some kind of quite misleading results if you don't manage to account for all of the um, population structure present uh, within your sample. Um, so I did want to talk about your methods work, developing and applying statistical methods. I was just wondering if you could kind of talk through what that is, basically. Sure. Yeah. So some, some colleagues and I have developed some statistical approaches to try to learn about ancestry. We've focused on a couple of different things. So one is clustering individuals who share similar genetic patterns. So, so trying to see about this regional structure that you've been talking about. So can we, you know, can we cluster individuals that have similar genetics? And how does that, if so, how does that correlate with things like geography or, or language or culture um, and various things? And then the other thing is looking at uh, seeing if we can identify and infer these admixture events. So can we take a population of individuals and see if that population seems to descend from the mixture of two or more different groups? And if so, when that mixture occurred and if it relates to a particular historical event. The statistics are sometimes a bit complicated, but I think the, the rough idea is, is fairly conceptually simple. You know, we have all this DNA sequence data from individuals and all we're doing is we just compare it. So we compare individuals' DNA to each other and individuals who share lots of strips of identical or nearly identical DNA sequences, that suggests that they're more recently related to each other than people who don't share lots of strips of DNA sequences in common. So for example, if I take my DNA and I compare it to two different people and with person A, I share lots of strips of DNA segments in common, that suggests that I share recent ancestry with individual A relative to individual B, where I don't share many strips of DNA samples in common. And furthermore, if you look at kind of the size of segments that you share in common, so if I share a very long DNA sequence that's similar with person A, that tells me something about how long ago I share an ancestor with that person. 
So if we share a parent, so person A is my brother, I'm going to share very long segments with that person. Well, if that person is, say, a cousin, so we share a grandparent, I'm going to share slightly shorter segments. And if I share, say, a great-great-great-grandparent with that person, it'll be shorter still. And so you can kind of take DNA segments, you can compare them amongst people, and you can learn about who shares recent ancestry and exactly how far back those individuals do share an ancestor. That's, that's really interesting. And I guess kind of crucially for your work around the world, SNP array data is far cheaper to generate than something like whole genome sequence data, which has only recently become cheap or cost effective enough to be used in large cohort groups like UK Biobank or like, um, like what we use at Genomics England for the 100,000 Genomes Project. So we've been using SNP array data um, predominantly because that's what was available when we first um, started doing this project. That's still the case that that's SNP array data is more available for lots of worldwide populations, which is what we want here. Um, but it can be applied to sequencing data as well. But you actually don't need it. You could use, um, it's true that sequencing data will give you more information. It should be a bit more accurate. But we're able to get away with this using SNP array data. So there's additional information that you can get out of sequencing that our methods um, was not exploiting. And so there's new, there's kind of a new generation of methods coming out to try to really capture the very rich additional information that you have in sequencing data, which are earlier techniques and that data wasn't available, uh, we, we didn't use. So it's very exciting that this data is forthcoming. <laughs> it's, you know, it's coming out more and more and more populations. Yeah, very much so. I know that we're very interested in looking at the diversity that we have within the Genomics England data. Um, again, we know that we do reasonably well compared to kind of the, the ancestral breakdown of, um, of England. Um, but again, we know that by broad ancestral group, we haven't really had a look yet at how we do when it comes to kind of breaking down those ancestries into smaller ethnic groups. So your methods there could be really interesting for us to to look at and to kind of see how well we do at covering um, ethnic groups within the wider ancestries. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess this gets back to, you know, having the right reference data. So you know, Genomics England, while it's predominantly of European, consists of people with predominantly European ancestry, there's lots of people with mixed ancestry from Africa, East Asia, South Asia, these various places. And so absolutely, yeah, you could use these sorts of techniques to figure out where these individuals' ancestors may have come from or who they're most related to in these regions today. But to do that, you need to have lots of good reference samples to compare them to in these various parts of Africa, East Asia, and South Asia. Uh, yeah, definitely. Do you want to talk a bit more about the admixture stuff? Like I, I could give some examples. Uh, yeah, we could do. What, what kind of things are you thinking of? Uh, yeah, so getting back to this idea of trying to infer admixture events, so when past populations intermixed, just to give you an example, so if, if you consider kind of a well-characterized example, if you look at some Native American groups, so for example, the Maya from Mexico, if you take their DNA, if you take DNA from these individuals and you compare them to worldwide populations to see what parts of the world do they match to, which other groups do they share matching strips of DNA segment patterns with, what you'll see is they predominantly look like other Native Americans, which is as expected. So Native Americans share a lot of recent ancestry. All their ancestors would have crossed the Bering Strait over 10,000 years ago to head into the Americas. But you also see about 10 to 20% of their DNA matches more to Europeans. And in particular, it matches most to Iberians, so modern day people, so people living in Spain. And that makes sense 
from what we know historically in that you had conquistadors and colonial era people coming from those areas and settling into the Americas. And this suggests that they intermixed with the local native population. And in particular, you could look at the size of segments that match to people in Spain. And that tells you when that DNA was contributed, when that intermixing happened. Roughly speaking, if you match long segments to a particular population, that suggests that mixing happened recently. Well, if you mix well, if you match smaller segments, that suggests that it happened longer ago. That's because of a process known as recombination, which breaks your DNA down. So anyway, in this case, we see that you match segments indicative of the DNA being contributed, say, about 10 or 11 generations ago, which corresponds to about the 1700s. And again, that fits quite well with what we know of when large scales migrations of people from Europe were heading into the Americas. And so in this way, you're able to use DNA of people alive today to reconstruct these historical intermixing events. I love that. That's such a clever use of genetic information, though, just trying to reconstruct the past based on based on fragment length like that. That's absolutely wonderful stuff. Yeah, we're surprised how well it worked. Yeah. Have you, have you done anything like that looking at looking at the UK? We have. Yeah. So um, with the UK, so the data set that we we're looking at, these are people predominantly, well, entirely of European ancestry. So these weren't considering kind of more recent migrants to the UK that might have African-related or South Asian, East Asian ancestry. And if you consider the European ancestry individuals, we took their genomes and we compared them to different parts of Europe. And we found that they predominantly matched to the neighboring countries. So they'd largely matched to France, for example. Um, and that's just because in our data set, that was the geographically closest country. And so typically populations that live near each other are more genetically related. But we also saw some segments that matched a bit further afield. They matched to northern Germany, to a specific area of northern Germany, and also to Denmark. And if we looked at the size of those segments, it seems to correspond to the Anglo-Saxon migrations. And so it suggested our analyses, and this may be a little bit off, but as best as we could tell at the time, is that maybe 10 to 40 percent of the DNA of people in England today can be traced back to Anglo-Saxon migrants of the 5th and 6th centuries. And that's why they share these matching DNA patterns with people who live in Denmark and northern Germany today. And so that's England. But if you go a bit further north into Scotland, and in particular in the Orkney Islands, uh, you don't see so much matching to Denmark, but instead you see matching to Norway. Okay, so you see that strips of DNA shared with people who live in Norway today, and we date those contributions to about the uh, ninth or 10th centuries, which corresponds to the Norwegian Viking invasions, uh, where they came in and, in fact, uh, annexed Orkney for about 500 years until the 1400s. And so you can pick up these mixture signals that have happened, and we see them even in the UK. And did you ever kind of map any of those DNA differences to differences in traits? Ah, so that's something that we want to be doing. So we have found that there is a correspondence looking at UK biobank between um, height. So if you look at individuals in the UK biobank, there's a strong correspondence between height and how much Dutch ancestry you have. <laughs> so like we don't know if that's Anglo-Saxon related. That might be more recent Dutch ancestry than that. But nonetheless, we know Dutch people are, I think they're the tallest of the world. And you can see that individuals who have inherited Dutch ancestry in the UK are amongst the tallest of the UK as well. So, so that's one example, but this is something that we're definitely interested in, is how much do these intermixing of populations lead to different traits developing, or how do they you know, distribute beneficial or possibly even detrimental genes into different populations? And we have tons of examples where they, there have been 
beneficial mutations provided from one population to another through intermixing. Well, because when I did my UK biobank work, I kind of looked at this from the other angle. We just looked for differences in traits across different regions of the UK, but we didn't delve too deeply into the genetics behind it. Oh, I see. See, yes. So there must be a strong correspondence between, um, you're saying geography and different traits as well. Yeah. So we, we kind of, we were running analyses to try and establish how much geographical variation and confounding there was within what's considered the white British subset of UK Biobank. So if you think of Biobank is about 500,000 people, the white British subset is about 350, 360,000, I believe. Um, and we were trying to see how much variation there was within within that. And it turned out to be absolutely low. So we had a look at some of the traits that came up most strongly. And yeah, height was height was one that came up with a kind of strong differences um, between geographical regions, but we kind of never had the never had the time or the, the, the kind of resources to go in and, and delve into the DNA and work out exactly what it was that was causing this. So that's really interesting to hear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's something that we're very much interested in. So as I mentioned, I've spent a lot of the last five or 10 years looking into migrations and inferring migrations amongst different populations. And we see these signals all over the place. Uh, so everywhere we look, we see signals of some sort of pass intermixing. There's a couple of prominent examples. If you look at populations spanning Central Asia, you see lots of matching to present-day Mongolians, dates precisely to the Mongol Empire. And so we know these are areas that were part of the former Mongol Empire, and it suggests that empire is very good at spreading DNA. But now we're quite interested in learning about, yeah, did that also result in different genes being passed along that maybe had been adaptive in one population, and then when they move into a new environment and give it to another population, they kind of get that adaptation for free. So there's a this isn't my work, but one example of this idea of a, a population you know, evolving a certain trait over time. So having their genetics, having a particular gene increase in frequency to allow them to do something and then passing that gene along to a different population. There was a study out a few years ago looking at uh, Sherpas and Tibetans. And what they found was that in Tibetans, there's some particular genes. So one is EPAS1, which seems to have been contributed to Tibetans from intermixing with Sherpas. You have this Sherpa-like population that's live at high altitudes, they have adapted to living at high altitudes, and part of the way that they were able to do that was through this particular gene, EPAS1, and so they developed this adaptation over probably thousands and thousands of years, and then they came along about, I can't remember exactly how long ago, a few thousand years ago, intermixed with a local Tibetan population and passed along those genes for free, and then now Tibetans have this gene, and they've also kept it to be able to live at high altitudes as well, and so we're kind of Scanning worldwide populations to see if we can find more evidence of cases like this, where one population uh, contributes an adaptive gene to another one. Again, really interesting stuff. I'm really going to try and keep on top of what you do in the future, because I'd love to hear more about that. Uh, well, thank you very much, Garrett. That's all for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and safety. Remember to subscribe to the G word on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you have views on these topics, if you have a suggestion for someone we should interview, uh, then do write to us at podcast.genomicsengland.co.uk. And remember, if you've enjoyed listening, that giving us a five-star review really helps other people find out about the series 
Uh, I'd appreciate it very much. Uh, I've been James. Uh, See you on the next episode of The G Word.